God reminded me of something this morning, and it's, it's so interesting to walk into this building and have the lights out, and, and the, the power is not off. By the way, the power is here in the name of Jesus Christ, right? By the Holy Spirit. We have all the power we need. But he reminded me of something that, that was really interesting. I woke up, I was reading an article about uh, a church in L.A. It's called Church Home. Maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, it's the church where the Beavers and the Kardashians go. And, uh, and I was reading some things that the pastor of this church was saying and talking about innovation and, and, and new ways of doing things. And, and it reminded me back when I was in youth ministry in the 90s and, and innovation was my middle name. I mean, I thought if it's cutting edge, if it's new, if it's right on the cusp, that's what we need to do. Innovation. And then the Lord gave me a word this morning driving here. And the word is transcendent. Do you realize that we are part of something that transcends all culture? It transcends all innovation. It transcends all of the wisdom and the intelligence of mankind. It transcends politics and impeachment. It transcends fear. It transcends worry. It transcends even the very sin in my life. We are believers in the transcendent Jesus Christ who doesn't need us to do anything but trust him and follow him. He doesn't need us to innovate. He doesn't need us to, you know, come up with the next best wave of of Christianity. We just follow him. And I, I know I've said it before, but I think about Jesus in the Galilee. What did he have to innovate with? You know, he had his word. He had the spirit of the living God. Guess what we have here this morning? We have his word and we have the spirit of the living God. And Father, we're so thankful to be part of something that is so much bigger than this world. And bigger than any one of our lives. And yet, Lord, as with David, we think, who are we that you think of us? Who are we that you visit us? That you'll look down on us, that you want to have anything to do with us is amazing. And then you invite us into your kingdom mentality. You invite us to be a part of what you're doing. And Lord, I'm reminded again today, and I pray that this word would, would, would touch us even before we get to, to our study. Father, that each and every one of us are engaged and involved and called to be a part of something that is bigger than anything we can innovate. And so we just trust you, Lord, and we praise you. We are in awe of you, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we open your word today, I pray that you will touch us and and remind us and encourage us. Bring revelation, Lord Jesus. And call us back to, if we've strayed at all, call us back to the things that really matter. And we look so forward to the day, the moment when we will be transcendent, when we will transcend these bodies, this, this world, when we will be caught up and we will be with you. But until that day, we just pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, continue to grow in us, continue to expand our spirit, men, our spirit, women, who we are, draw us near to you in faith and trust and simplicity, Lord. And we ask all these things. In the name of your dear son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. 
chapter 8. Just a few verses here at the end of the chapter. We blew by them on Sunday morning, or on Wednesday night. And I want to slow down and, and rethink these. <laughs> I cornered myself once again. I do this from time to time. We do a Wednesday night teaching. We go through the chapter and I, I leave something. I think, oh, that, that looks interesting to me. There's something there. We'll come back and look at that Sunday morning. And then Thursday, I get in the office. I go back to that little section and I go, why am I forcing myself to study this? And then God begins to open up and explain why. And, and this is one of those sections. It's truly remarkable. Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat And summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. I love the last verse. I mean, doesn't it just seem like the time of year? Seed time and harvest. Cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night and even power outages shall not cease. (laughs) This has especially important significance to us. In the day and age in which we live... In the world in which we live. From the Agence Française Presse. Agency France Press. Imagine a world where storms inundate coastal megacities. Entire species become extinct in the blink of an eye. And conflicts are fought over dwindling natural resources. Not so difficult in 2019, perhaps, after a year of devastating extreme weather and worldwide unrest over the emergency posed by climate change, topics that used to belong to the realm of science fiction are finding their way into mainstream storytelling. Back in 2004, Roland Emmerich's disaster flick, The Day After Tomorrow, depicted a global weather catastrophe with coastal areas devoured by the sea amid general meteorological mayhem. Just 15 years on, scenes from the movie resemble images taken from real-life weather events today. And as climate change makes superstorms and flooding and wildfires and droughts more likely, says Agency France Press, a new genre is gaining fatalistic fans the world over. It's called cli-fi. Cli-fi. It's catching on like wildfire, said U.S. writer and cli-fi aficionado Dan Bloom. There are a lot of people who say that climate change is not real, said Bloom. These people are making the rest of us very angry. And as a result, cli-fi has more and more power. Climate fiction. I think that's an appropriate name. (laughs) You could say it's taking the world by storm. Pope Francis is big on this, by the way. He is, uh, just said this this last week, he is planning to add defined ecological hate sins to the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. The message, listen, please hear me. The message of the church is not the climate. We are not... Climate change deniers, that's not the point. We are Christ forever followers. 
See, and I, I've kidded about this over the years, and I've poked fun at climate change, and, and obviously I have my own thoughts about that, for right or for wrong, but that's simply not the point. Whether there is truly climate change happening or not is not my concern. If I believe in a transcendent God, if I believe in a God who has laid out for us the beginning to the end and his plan, I'm not concerned about climate change. Now, I'm concerned about stewardship of the earth. Don't get me wrong. I shed a tear along with that Native American in the commercials when I was a kid when trash was thrown at his feet. I am not about littering and I'm not about trashing the environment. And I think we need to do our part to care for and steward the world that God has given us. However, I will say this again. It's not about being a climate change denier or alarmist. It's about being a Christ forever follower. I believe in Jesus. And my message is the message of Jesus Christ who is the same. Amen. Hebrews 13, 8. He is the same. He is consistent. Talk about no need to innovate. And though the world be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, and it is, if it's a question of a chaotic climate or a coordinated creator, I believe the creator I think God knows exactly what he's doing for all the social and cultural and even environmental upheaval that we may experience in life. We still live in a world where God's word and God's will reigns supreme. So either he's God or he's not. And by the way, that's personal as well as cultural. Either he's God of your life or he's not. Either he is my Lord and my focus or he's not. That sounds awfully black and white, I understand, but that's the attitude that we're called to have. I believe him or I don't. And if I believe him, then it's all about him. It's what he says that matters. It's what he says that I want to turn around and speak. God's order reigns in this world. Because you know what the Bible tells us? He is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Now, the Apostle Paul, the context of that was he was talking to Corinth where church services were confusing, where things were out of control and people were stepping on each other to be the more spiritual. And Paul says, that's not the way it should be. It should be organized and orderly because God is organized. God is not confusing. He is a God of peace. He is not a God of chaos. He is not a God of commotion or confusion. And some might say, well, wait a minute. It sounds like you're contradicting yourself. If you're saying that God is in control of this earth, but we see these storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and all these things going on, isn't that chaos? God is not a God of chaos. The only time he allows chaos or the appearance of chaos is in judgment, as in the flood. Now, if you want to talk about global climate change, talk to Noah. This is a man who understands a radically changed climate from the first 600 years of his life to the last 300 years of his life. He saw a radically different world. He went through an utterly changing environment like nobody in the history of the world ever has. 
He knew the full range of it. He sailed out of the antediluvian world and into the post-flood era. So if anyone could talk about, preach on, and discuss climate change, it would be Noah. But among the judged outside the ark, it must have all seemed wildly chaotic, confusing. See, it's only confusing when you reject God. When you refuse to listen to God, yeah, then life gets confusing. You want to do it your way? You're going to find yourself at a loss. You want to do it God's way? He is a God of peace and understanding. Some might protest because I, I indicate that the flood is God's divinely or was God's divinely ordered, calculated, controlled event. And some might say, well, okay, you say that God was in control. I'll add to that, by the way, it accomplished his will. It did what God intended for it to do. And some might say, wait, 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 his will, his order, the deaths of, you, you told us, you told us, Rick, if we're to believe you that there may have been as many people on the earth then as there are now, and the deaths of all those people, you call that God's perfect will. Yes, I do. First of all, understand Ezekiel 18.32 For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, by the way, I know we don't have the verses up right now for you. If you check out the podcast, the verses are listed there. So you can get them later. If we get the podcast, <laughs> we'll figure out a way to do it. I mean, we are recording here. We do have battery power. So uh, the verses should show up there if you miss them, or you can ask me afterwards, and, and I'll tell you I don't have time. So, <laughs> so God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked even. We might say the death of the deserving. God says, I, I don't enjoy that. I don't look forward to that. God wasn't up there clapping his hands as people were drowning in the flood. That's not the point. So why the flood? Well, we've already talked about how sin sick and how wicked the world was and how corrupt even the bloodline of humanity had become. We've looked at those things, but there's a bigger reason. Why the flood? For the salvation of all who lived and died before the flood in faith in, in the Lord. Everyone who lived before. See, we got down to eight people. Remember that Noah and his family, that was it on planet earth who even believed. How much longer would it have taken to get to zero faith on the planet? A generation? Noah's grandkids? At what point would it have been completely over? And if it ended, well, then all who died, I'm talking about people like Abel, Seth, Methuselah. And countless others who truly did believe in God, had a relationship with God. And yet, without the redemptive blood of Jesus that came post-flood, that would ultimately come, all of those would have been lost. Countless millions, if not billions of people, would have been lost. God had to stop things to restart things so that ultimately the offering of the pure blood of Jesus Christ could come. The ark and all on board survived that global cataclysmic event. And what we note here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, if you just look back there, 
In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So in the region of Ararat, we talked about that, looked at it on Wednesday night. But we see the ark come quietly to a rest on the mountain. And Ararat, if you were here Wednesday, you know Ararat means the curse reversed. Which is amazing. to me. I don't make this stuff up. I mean, it preaches really well, but I don't make it up. The curse reversed, that's what Ararat means. Why would God land the ark there? Because that's what's happening. All right, let's start over. It's a redo. It's a refresh. But the ark rested there. And this is amazing to me. Then Noah waited in the ark a total of seven more months before they finally went out. Did you realize that? 40 days and 40 nights on the ark. That's a long time. (laughs) Well, it was 150 days of storming. But all told, 378 days they were on that boat. And seven months of the whole time, seven out of the, out of the over a year period of time they were there, they were sitting on the mountain. They weren't even rocking. They were steady. But they stayed in the ark until the Lord finally said in verse 16, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. By the way, according to the King James translation, Noah was not the first man out of the ark. Genesis 8, 18 in the King James says, Noah went forth. (laughs) Just seeing if you're with me. By the way, along this line of thinking, why didn't Noah use fiberglass to build the ark? Because God told him to go for wood. Anyone know what kind of lighting they had on the ark? Floodlights. Where where did they keep the bees on the ark? In the archives. Of course. You know, we don't know the answers actually to many of these important questions because there was no accountability. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well... Really what we need to ask you, let's go back to the study. What was it like for Noah to disembark? (laughs) (laughs) He stepped out into a renewed world, a changed environment, a world as yet without sin, without chaos, without violence, without human clamor. Can you imagine that first step out of the ark? And what's the first thing you would do? I'll tell you what I would do. I mean, after being cramped and confined on a big floating zoo barge for 378 days, I think I would do what's described in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, which Kidner says conjures up the sheer physical joy of release after confinement. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Man, that would be me getting off that boat. Skipping about like a calf out of the stall. Man, honey, grab the picnic basket. Kids, get the frisbee. Grab the football. It's party time. Woohoo, we're back. Let's enjoy ourselves. Kidner says, Noah's first thought was Godward. We're told that Noah built an altar to the Lord. First thing he did. First thing he did out of the ark. He built an altar. 
I, I want to look at three things that immediately happened when Noah set foot on dry ground. And the very first thing is an orderly offering. Noah built an altar and offered up sacrifices, an orderly offering. We're going to spend the bulk of our time right here. We have two more things I'll share toward the end here. But verse 20 says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the new era began. That's how it started. With a blood offering. Actually with multiple blood offerings. It reminds me of the first blood offering. When Adam and Eve left the garden. Remember God made skins of animals for them to wear. Made clothes for them. So right there was a blood offering as they left the garden. The first sacrificial offering. But what's interesting here in verse 20 of Genesis 8. You might mark this in your Bibles. This is the first time we see the word altar in the Bible. First use, and I think the power's on. Yeah. So, Luke, you want to hit the lights, and let's see if we can get things wired up here. And, <laughs> and I'm going to turn this thing on and see if we can get sound. Isn't it amazing how excited we are? <laughs> all right, so this is on. I don't, it may take a minute to boot things, and all of a sudden I'll come blasting in full voice, but... First altar, there it is. <laughs> this is the first altar in the Bible, and it's very interesting to me. Remember, the principle of first mentions, if you find something, well, if you're studying through the scriptures, and you come to some concept or idea, and you're struggling to understand it, go back to the first time it's talked about. Because nine times out of ten, that will give you insight to help you understand what it is you're studying. The first altar, for as many altars as we will see through the Bible, For as many sacrificial offerings as there are, this is incredibly significant to pause and understand. Before this, before this altar was set up by Noah and offerings were made on it, I I believe personally, you don't have to agree with me on this, but offerings such as Abel's were brought to the east entrance of the Garden of Eden and there lay before the presence of the Lord. What makes you say that? We talked about it. Let me refresh you. Genesis 3.24 says at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim that is at least two and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life stationed in the Hebrew is enthroned he enthroned two cherubim there or more again cherubim is plural but the word enthroned is in Hebrew shekan where we get the word shekinah which is the word for the glory the presence of the glory of God So there's indication there, and and many conservative Bible scholars would agree with that, that that that's where they went to give offering, to the east entrance of Eden, there before, where the cherubim were. It makes sense, because later on, the Ark of the Covenant had the two cherubim on top, and offering was made, blood was sprinkled on the Ark. When Jesus resurrected, and the women went to the tomb, and saw two angels, one at the head and one at the foot, like the top of the ark where offering was made. So there are connections here. Kyle and Delich write the sons of Adam had built no altar for their offerings because God was still present on the earth in paradise so that they could turn their offerings and hearts toward that abode. 
But with the flood, God had swept paradise away, withdrawn the place of his presence, and therefore set up his throne in heaven, from which he would henceforth reveal himself to man. Now, that's just two guys' opinion. It's a good opinion. It's, it's scripturally based, but is that exactly what happened? I'm not saying that. But I am saying that offerings were made in a different way before the flood. Now, after the flood, for the first time, we have Noah building an altar, probably a stone platform, raised up to a degree, from which the smoke of the offering would now rise up heavenward toward God, kind of like prayer. Offering, the word offering, is olat in Hebrew. And olat literally translates ascending. An offering is something that you give, you offer, but that ascends to the Lord. That's a great definition for offering. Something that ascends. Offerings, in other words, in our culture, in our language, we might say offerings are what we give up. We give up. It's sacrificial. We give it up. But it's Godward in that we give it up. Like our prayer, our, our offerings, our prayers are offerings that rise before the Lord. And our offerings, like prayer, rise before the Lord. Remember Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4. An angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. This is in heaven. And there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense, which came from the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. See, offerings are what please God. And one of the things that pleases God more than anything else is when we talk to him, when we offer prayer, when we commune with him. That is pleasing to the Lord, as pleasing as any offering that we might make. And Noah's offering was no doubt prayerful, no doubt communicative between him and the Lord. And with that, you could call this first offering the first thanksgiving. No, Noah didn't offer a turkey. But he offered these sacrifices thankfully. Note that. Just a couple of things. Like I said, I want to pause on offerings to really grasp something here. It's so much bigger than we even have time for this morning. But on offerings, offerings draw out a thankful faith. When we give, when we make offering to the Lord, it draws up. It it increases a thankful faith. I mentioned Wednesday. Do you understand that's God's will for you? People ask all the time, what is the will of God for my life? Thanksgiving is the will of God. Not stuffing and cranberry sauce. Thanksgiving, the act of thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, this works. I have found this to be true in my life. The more thankful I am, the more I trust God. I mean, it really does impact faith. Your faith is waffling. Start thanking him for what he has done, for how he has covered you. Look back over your life and don't wallow in all the misery. Look at what he's done, how he's protected, how he's provided. A thankful heart increases faith. It just works. And by the way, note that it's God's will, not for himself, but for you to be thankful. It's his desire for you that with every offering you make, you do so thankfully. Now, buckle up and turn to Psalm 50. If you've got your Bible with you, Psalm 50. We need to look at this and think about something here. 
Psalm 50 is actually a song of Asaph. And he writes. And if you note the, the heading of Psalm 50, it's God the judge of the righteous and the wicked. Now that's what the, some of the translators stuck in there as a good title for this psalm. But it's simply called a psalm of Asaph. And I want to pick it up down in verse 7. Listen to it through and, and stick with me here for a minute. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. See, at this point, God steps in to speak. The first six verses Asaph is, is describing, he's talking. But then as he pauses, God starts to speak. And Asaph writes it down. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. And your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all it contains. You know, when I was a kid, I remember the the dream of owning McDonald's. So that any time I wanted, I could eat McDonald's. I could go, if I just owned a McDonald's, how cool would that be, you know? Or owned, better than that, the Hershey Chocolate Factory in Pennsylvania. Because at any time I wanted, I could just walk in there, you know? But I had to save up my allowance, pennies at a time. Save up and then go down to the little five and dime store and buy my little bag of candy. Or if I was really saving up, Dad, take me into McDonald's. I have enough for a cheeseburger and save and so you appreciated it so much you could save off you you know what I found is kind of funny now at this point in my life when I go to McDonald's anytime I want to I really don't want to I can buy any candy I want and it's just it kind of loses the you know the specialness of well that's from our perspective God has everything it all belongs to him he's got it anyway We think we're doing this big favor to the Lord when we write a check and drop it in the box. Oh, Lord, look down on me, thy servant. Be pleased with my great faith as I give to you of my abundance that I have earned and worked hard for all my life. He says, shall I eat, verse 13, the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God. Or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. 
He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. What's the point? The sacrifice of thanksgiving causes the heart to recognize everything I have comes from him. There's not one thing that truly belongs to me. Not one red cent of my income has been earned by me. Do, do we understand that? that just, and I'm going to go dollars and cents on you here for a moment. When we think about giving, when we think about tithes and offerings, and we think, I, I really can't afford to do that. It's not your money. God has graciously loaned it to you to use. And, and that mentality, I think, is sadly lacking in the church today. Look at it this way. Who ordered Noah to take in seven by seven by seven of the clean animals and birds? Who did that? God did, right? Who created those animals in the first place? God did. Who brought them to Noah on the ark? God did. So the provision for this offering came from the cattle on a thousand hills, not from Noah. Noah didn't say, well... I've worked hard. I've earned a lot. I will grace God with my little 10% here. Completely different attitude. We never give to God. We give thankfully from God. I give him what he's already given to me. I'm just offering. Why am I doing that? Does God need it? Of course not. If I was hungry, he said, I wouldn't ask you. Oh no, Rick didn't pay his tithe today. How are we going to eat, angels in heaven? I don't give to him. Even the giving, it honors him. But I do it because he knows what it will do to me. The same as thanksgiving affects the heart. Giving of any kind affects the faith. We talk about that. I need to explain something because every now and then this will come up. And that's the issue of fundraising. Fundraising. Our youth group doesn't fundraise. A lot of churches do. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's not sinful to have fundraisers. Our women's ministry is now having a car wash. <laughs> kind of fun. Uh, you know, we don't do fundraising. Why don't you do fundraising? That's a little uptight. What, what's that all about? Because we want any giving here at the Bridge Fellowship to be done by faith. That was a principle we started 16 years ago, and I hold to it, not because it's the way we've always done things, but because if you're going to give to the Lord in this fellowship, you give to the Lord by faith. You're doing it out of trust. You're not doing it because of a gimmick. You know, we had the baby bottles thing for a pregnancy care clinic, which is wonder. I I love that they're doing it to raise money. We need to support pregnancy care clinic. I am 100% behind this organization. You need to know that. But we stopped doing the baby bottles here. And people got real upset at first. We said, wait a minute, that's not what it's about. How much did we raise in the baby bottles last year? And I think it was like, back when this happened a couple of years ago, it was like $1,600. Okay, cut them a check for $2,000 out of the tithes and offerings, the faithful giving of the people. Let's not do the gimmicks. Let's just trust God. And if everybody gave in faith and thankfully we would have unlimited resource to minister in this world. That's kind of the whole idea. If I decide whether or not I can afford to tithe, and by the way, when I say tithe, please be clear on this, 
Tithing, by definition, is 10% of your gross income. That's tithing. Anything else is not tithing. You can 9%, you can 7%. That's between you and God. I'm not, I'm not judging that, but I'm just saying if you're talking about tithing, it's 10% of gross income. That's what tithing is. And if I decide whether or not I can afford to give a tithe to the provider of my income in the first place, please hear me, listen, I lack faith. I lack faith. That may offend some, but it's actually very plain and simple. Someone might say, well, okay, but pastor, I give to the charities and organizations that I think are doing good work. Great. That's compassion. That's not faith. That's kindness. It's not faith. It's trusting in an organization. We're talking about trusting in the creator. That's the difference. It took me a long time in my life to understand there's tithing, which is an act of faith, and then there's charitable giving, which is an act of choice. I do that because I want to. Some compassion children. We do things, Cheryl and I, with our money financially, because we just feel led by God to do those things. That's not tithing. Tithing is what increases my faith. By the way, charitable giving rarely increases my faith. It makes me feel good. I love sending off a check to compassion. It makes me feel good. It doesn't make me trust God more. I mean, what is it? A dinner out a month? But tithing. <laughs> that increases faith. It's a very simple thing. If you want to grow in your faith, one of the best things you can do is start tithing today. I can't do that, Rick. Well, no, you can't. God can. He already gave it to you. He knows how to help you live on 90%. He's up to that. Give the first of the best of your provision, just like Noah did. And your faith, I'm just saying, if you want your faith to increase, it's one way to do it. And it works. It is a practical action you can take. By the way, note that God didn't even ask Noah for this offering. One of the debates that people have is that, well, tithing's an Old Testament concept. Well, I can show you that it's not, but, but tithing's an Old Testament concept, and we're not asked for that. And, and honestly, if you read the New Testament, I think we're asked for a lot more. I think it's way beyond 10%. If you really look at the text and what Jesus said and what the apostles are saying, and I lost my train of thought, oh, that God didn't ask Noah for the offering So even if you want to say tithing is an Old Testament concept, fine, that's not the issue. It's not that he's saying you must do this to be saved because tithing has nothing to do with salvation except that it increases your faith. But the point is, you give not because you're being required to, but because you trust in the Lord. Look at verse 21, Genesis chapter 8. Back there, sorry. Genesis 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. I guess God likes barbecue. Is that what's going on here? He smelled the soothing aroma. Soothing aroma in the Hebrew, and I won't repeat the word because it's difficult to say. It means a sweet savor, a a pleasing fragrance. Do you know why it was pleasing to the Lord? Why all sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord? It's a soothing, sweet aroma. Because it's offered by faith. That's what makes it sweet to the Lord. As Noah's offering ascended, because offering means ascended. As the offering ascended up to the Lord, he went, oh, that smells so good. And it wasn't the burning meat. 
Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. There could be no pleasing aroma if it wasn't something offered by faith. He who comes to God, the Hebrew pastor says, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So by faith, Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became, note this, and became, don't miss this, an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now there's something you don't think about every day. You're trusting God in your offering and you, you are an heir of righteousness. I don't know if I can part with this 10%. You're an heir of righteousness. Guess what? If your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, you know how rich that makes you? I'm a son of the father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember what the eldest son said in the story of the prodigal son? When he was so upset that his brother got a party after being a jerk? He's sitting out there going, it's not fair. I've been here all these years. When did you ever give me a a, a calf to kill? And what did the father say? It's always here. Anytime you wanted, you could have... I'm not talking prosperity gospel here. I'm just saying I'm an inheritor of eternity. I I belong to God. And I'm going to quibble over a little offering on a Sunday? We're talking attitude change here so that our faith will change. I'm not concerned, by the way, about the church budget. Please don't think that's where this is coming from. And I remind those of you who don't know this, that leadership doesn't know what people give. We put boxes in the back so that we don't know or pay attention. It's between you and God. This is a you and God thing. And if you feel uncomfortable whenever we talk about money, that's you and God. Don't shoot me an email. I don't want to know. But our provision is the Lord. He gives. So if I give anything, it's already come from him. And I'm an inheritor of all that is his. He wants to give to me and to you as his children. And you can't put a price tag on that. Offerings draw out a thankful faith. Offerings also define true worshipers. That's something else incredibly significant about the offering. Rather than skipping about like calves from a stall, Noah immediately launches into the first post-flood service of worship. Kanye is holding worship services, Sunday services. I guess he's going down to Joel Osteen's church and they're going to have a big to-do down there. You can get tickets for $500. Now we could do that, Steve. Maybe we just stop this whole offering tithing thing and we just charge admission. That's really sad to me. Offerings define true worship. Because offering to God is what you do when you know you've been saved. Offering worship up to the Lord. You sounded great this morning. By the way, good for you. You sounded beautiful. It was kind of nice to have everything turned down and hear the voices. Why don't we do that every Sunday? Well, I don't know. Talk to Rachel. But but the worship, the worship. People worship when they know they've been saved. People worship when they know they've been healed. How do you feel about a doctor who does a good job in surgery on you? They're amazing. The doctor who did my surgery a couple of years ago... (laughs) Leah, when he walked into the room, he had an angelic glow about him. (laughs) To me, I'm like, oh, he's the guy who saved me. When you get saved, you, you naturally, you want to worship. Jesus was walking along the Galilee. 
And having gone up on a mountain, Matthew chapter 15, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid him Lay them down at his feet and he healed them. And this process, it looks like in the Bible, went on for about three days. He's just sitting there healing people. <laughs> They're bringing amazing. Jesus, by the way, you know, he didn't come to heal people of their physical stuff. He came to save us. He came to seek and save the lost. That was the mission statement. It wasn't healing. But such is the compassion of God as all these sick and lame and blind and deaf people are coming to him. He's like healed, 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 healed. How amazing that would have been. And it says the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking and the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel. It's what you do when you're healed. You worship. So offerings define true worshipers. It's it's the greatest thing. What Noah did there, it is the greatest single thing that the restored and saved do is worship. If worship ever goes a little long on a Sunday morning, recognize it is the most important thing we do. We're here for him. Amen. We're not here for us. I ah, really wish we'd get to the teaching or I wish the teaching would be over so we could get to the guy. I wish I could get out to lunch. <laughs> We're here for him. Amen. And the worship, worship is what we do. And, and how we worship does matter. John 4, 23, an hour is coming and now is, Jesus said, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, Jesus declares. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I worry about this sometimes because I'm, I'm thinking I'm seeing worship in the church becoming way too innovative. I'm watching it go off in a direction. That does concern me. And Rachel, if you don't get it together. No, I'm, this is not about Rachel. <laughs> it's not about how we're doing worship here. It's, it's an ongoing conversation actually that we have. We talk about worship and, and the church. And what does God want out of this? And I got to share just a, an excerpt here of ChristianPost.com article with Keith Getty. Keith and Kirsten Getty. Uh, Keith is the one who wrote In Christ Alone. And he's kind of being credited right now with bringing a lot of kind of modern hymn worship. He's reaching back and he's talking about the value of the hymns. That they weren't just songs in spirit, but they were songs in truth. And they taught biblical truths and doctrinal truths straight out of scripture. So he says this, Keith Getty says over 75%. Listen to this. Over 75% of what are called great hymns of the faith talk about eternity, heaven, Hell and the fact that we have peace with God. Less than 5% of modern worship songs even mention eternity. Many worship songs are focused on this earth. And he calls it a movement of cultural relevance. That should concern everybody in the church. He says it's a de-Christianizing of God's people and it's utterly dangerous. The orderly offering that we're talking about here, Noah's offering, the picture we see to an, a God of order is an offering of thankful worship. And it is defined by one thing, one thing alone. Worship is defined by what pleases the Lord. That's, that's what worship is. Not what pleases me, not what songs I like, not what musical style I'm into. What pleases the Lord, not ourselves. Through him then, 
Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Hebrews 13, 15. So we're still on offerings. We're still on verse 20. A little bit into verse 21 because it's a soothing aroma to the Lord. But offerings draw out a thankful faith. Offerings define true worship. And get this, note this, every single offering in the Bible directs us to Jesus. That's why they're there. Everyone. The blood sacrifice of Jesus is, is what they're all honing in on. And when I consider what Jesus gave, not 10% by the way, but his entire life, it floods my heart with a thankful, worshipful, focused faith. A faith that is focused on him. Let me read this to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he was perfected for all, or he has perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. That's it. The one offering of Jesus, everything else from Noah forward. In fact, go back further than that. From Abel forward, every single offering was honing in and focusing in on one offering, the ultimate offering of Jesus. As we get further into Torah, we're going to see this. We'll understand the five sacrificial offerings of Israel as delineated in Leviticus. Every single one stands out as an obvious cameo of the Christ. We'll look at those when we, you know, Lord willing, we get to Leviticus. We'll talk about how each one portrays and pictures and focuses us on Jesus. Why all the blood offerings? Jesus Christ. That's your answer. Someone wants to understand, I don't get the offer. Jesus. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Nothing was more pleasing to God than the cross. Because in it, Jesus offered himself up that we might be saved. Verse 21. So the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, literally the Lord said to his heart. He's talking to himself. He's about to make a deep personal commitment here. The indication is God is working this out and and handing it forward. He's speaking it. But it's what he's saying to himself. And when God gives his word to himself, he's going to keep his word. So the Lord said to himself, to his heart, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. This is number two, (laughs) an ordered promise. I said we'd spend the most of the time on the orderly offering. So we've done that. Number two, now he makes an ordered promise. And we are just scratching the surface of what is called the Noahic Covenant. It begins right here. It runs all the way down through chapter 9, verse 17. And we'll take a good look at that on Wednesday night. The Noahic Covenant. But note the wording. God says, and it's strange to me, I will never again curse the earth on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
What? I wouldn't say it that way. I, in fact, that's very confusing. I would expect God to say, I will never again do this because man has learned his lesson. See, that's what I would say to my kids. After the spanking, I hope to never have to do this again because you've learned your lesson. And then the spanking comes again because clearly the child has not learned his or her lesson. Which is exactly what God is saying. He's saying even though the intention of man's heart is still evil. Even after the flood, the intention's still there and the evil is still there. Even though this is the truth, I won't curse the ground again. Not like this. Even though I know man is still going to do it. Going to be wrong. Going to sin. Think about that. The flood washed clean the entire planet and it couldn't change the heart. And note God says this. He says, for the intent of man's heart is evil. The word intent can also be translated the imagination and that's where we get tagged. It's not your behavior that he's concerned with. It's your intention. It's your motivation. God brushes right past behavior and goes straight to the thought life. That dark stuff in our heads that we hope no one ever really sees. It often gets expressed in behavior. But I can pull back behavior and yet the head can still be going dark. And the heart can still have those evil imaginations. And perhaps the most honest, brutally honest Repentance cry in the scriptures, David said in Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. He says in verse 12 of Psalm 51, Oh, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David got it. A thousand years before the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, David understood he had a heart problem. And he went on to write in in verse 16, you do not delight, note this, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, by your grace, by your goodness, he's saying, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. When? When the heart's right. When the giving is right, and I'll tell you what, if you drop a 10% into the box this morning under duress, it will not be pleasing to God. You give 20% of your income frustrated and grumpy that the pastor made you feel so guilty. It will not please God. A heart of thanksgiving, a heart of faith that makes that kind of offering, that is pleasing to God. That's the, the value of the offering is based on the heart behind it and a thankful, worshipful, intentional offering. But even though the heart of humanity is inherently evil, which the Bible makes very clear, he still says at the end of verse 21, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. As I have 
done and he's kept his promise. We have never again seen a global flood. I am amazed, truly amazed, after all the study that we've done, and you've seen it now, verse by verse, through the flood, you've read about the flood, it stuns me when people say it was a local flood. You didn't read the Bible if you think it was a local flood. Or you're undermining the very word of God. It's absolutely obvious the entire globe was planet Earth. The mountains, every last mountain was covered. 15 cubits above the highest mountain peak of the world, the Bible said. The Bible says, well, if you're going to take the Bible literally. (laughs) Of course I do. Of course I do. Because the Bible is literal and he has kept his promise. There hasn't been another global flood in four and a half thousand years. But God did not abolish disasters, did he? No more global flood, but he did take what was a global judgment and he's localized it. So there are disasters. There are hurricanes and tsunamis and fires and floods and earthquakes. Always local, never global. And I'm convinced personally, you can argue this point, but I think many of these localized catastrophes are the Lord God with absolute climate control calling for man's attention and repentance. I think that's why it happens. Wake up, people. Listen up, folks. Jesus said, Luke 21, 25, there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars. And on the earth, dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear. And the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. No outage is going to stop him. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So these localized catastrophes are God with complete control still breaking into time. Breaking into the world and getting our attention. Wake up, look, listen, repent. Because a true end is coming. Not as I have done. See, he will never again flood the world, but you all know the Bible talks about he will destroy the world with fire. Now stay with me on this. 2 Peter 3 verse 7. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Kept? Why kept, Peter? Because the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why we see these climate catastrophes as people think. Climate change causing all this stuff. That's why we see these localized and not global. Because God is still holding back that final judgment. He is still keeping that fire in place that ultimately will destroy this planet. So an orderly offering, verse 20, an ordered promise that God makes, verse 21, and lastly, an orderly outlook, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. 
climate change. Note by verse 22, by God's own word, by this statement, something's already different. There was a climate change from before to after the flood. We now have cold and heat. We now have summer and winter. We now have seasonal shifts in temperature and weather. We now have a a changed climate from the way it was before. There's your climate change. Yes, it has happened in the history of the world. Climate change. Some scientists believe the cataclysm of the flood caused the earth at that time to tilt 23.5 degrees on its axis, which has given us now four seasons. I believe that was a post-flood event. Speaking to rebellious Israel, but with application to our current cultural climate, the Lord said the following through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 23. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities, he says, have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Climate change alarmism. You know where it comes from? It comes of believing that we are masters of our vessels and we are saviors of the world. That's that's the, the message. We can do this. We can make it happen. We have the kind of power and authority needed to reverse things on the planet. But you know what the Lord promises? Listen to this. God's word says the longevity of the lifestyle of the earth will continue, he says, as long as the earth exists, cycle after cycle after cycle, it's going to continue to run. It's November. It's raining. Whoa, there's a shocker. There's cold across America. Heading into winter. Oh no. Who saw that coming? (laughs) Fall and winter and spring and summer. Followed by fall and winter and spring and summer. Followed by fall and winter and spring and summer. This has been going on, my friends, since the flood. And God says it will not cease. It will continue. I promise you. If if, if we're still here on the earth, a year from now, it's probably going to rain. Just... Bring your umbrellas. Be prepared, right? When does it stop? When the earth ceases to exist. That's when it will all end. Well, when is that? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. We've already covered this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That's when it stops. Here's the thing, and here's our outlook. Please understand and get this. This is why I do not fear climate change. Why cli-fi is, I think, an accurate name for it, climate fiction. Because the Lord says this is going to continue. Things will go forward. I cannot join the environmental evangelists who say that we have to save the planet or that it will end in 12 years. I expect it to end much sooner. (laughs) No, actually, I don't. I don't expect the planet to end for a long time. I expect this age to be over very quickly. And here's the outlook. Understanding, even if we got called out of here tonight, 
Even if God's wrath began tomorrow and seven years of tribulation began, you know what the Bible says? You know what God promised God's word? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. The world will go on. The earth will continue until the Lord says finished. When he says finished, when he says, okay, I'm done with old earth, then it's going to flee away. And you know, you Bible students understand that, that between now and that time when the earth is destroyed by fire, between now and then, there's a heavenly honeymoon for those who follow Jesus. That's next on the agenda. Those who are thankful and worshipful and trust in the Lord. And then after that, there's a millennial kingdom and the seasons... Cold and heat in summer and winter will continue for a thousand years. How do you know that? Because God said so. Because the Lord declared it. Because he is not a man that he should lie. He keeps his word. His promises are true. We can trust that. When the earth finally does flee away, here's the ordered outlook. God, by his word, has ordered a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. I can't even fathom it. We tried to look at it in our revelation study. This is what we will call home. And that's the outlook. And that's the promise of God. Man, that is not climate fiction. That's climate control in the hands of our God. He's the one who's got it. So our evangelism is not environmental. Our evangelism is eternal. Our message of hope, our gospel Our good news is an eternal message. It is not to save the planet. It is to stand by and see the salvation of our God. That's our message. Let's stand up together. So Noah faithfully makes an offering to God. God faithfully says, I will not destroy the world again as I have done. And then God gives us this beautiful outlook of an earth that will remain until he is finished with it. Then the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Let's bring this a little closer to home. Does your life seem chaotic? How's the climate of your household? Is it stormy? Raining? A little flooded? Does your life seem out of control? Listen, I get it. (laughs) I get out of control. I get feeling like things are beyond me. And things are, how am I going to, now there's this, how do we, and Cheryl and I have had those conversations, and recently. You know what? Can I just encourage you, don't write it out. Don't just try to weather the storm or hunker down in hopes that things are going to somehow eventually get better. How about instead you come to the God of order and peace? The God who has control of all things. The God of all the promises of hope. Jesus said in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. 
when the world comes on like a flood, be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome. Let's pray. Oh, most holy Lord. We thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I, I thank you. I, I feel like we've been given a very significant, a, a beautiful divine intervention this morning. And what a great object lesson this power outage has been. And the rain behind us and the, the wind blowing. We see exactly what you're talking about. Father, we stand before you this morning because we believe that you have control. I stand before you this morning, Lord, because I believe I have no control. (laughs) My life is beyond my control. But you transcend even the chaos. You transcend the worry. You go right past the fear. And you come, oh God of peace, you come bringing such calm in the midst of all things. Father, my heart breaks for people who don't believe that. Who don't have a God of peace they can run to, a Jesus they can cry out to. Because Lord, I have found and many of us have that when we are in our worst moments, we can speak the name of Jesus and peace comes. Well, Lord, I I speak the name of Jesus over our fellowship this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, I ask that you'd move among us. And I pray that your peace would come. Some are just striving right now and struggling and having difficulty financially. And I pray peace would come and trust and faith. Lord, others are just not sure they believe. I pray, Lord, would you drop just enough faith in the heart of a struggling, non-believing person. Just enough faith that they will speak the name of Jesus and know your peace. And Father, I, I pray finally that for all these things, that you will give us as a fellowship the message of the gospel. This is what we stand on. The life mission to proclaim Jesus. Whatever our vocation, whatever our business, whatever we're doing through the week of our lives, that we are a people on mission to bring the gospel of peace to a chaotic world. Holy Spirit, we invite you, we ask you to move, to transcend our flesh and to move in us in a way that is powerful and life-changing. For the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Savior. And we pray this in the most holy name of Jesus. Amen.